Hello and welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And this is the only podcast about board game design. The one, the only. We crushed all the others and now we are the only one left. In a gladiator style, we destroyed the competition and won. So thank you for joining us. Uh, This is our victory lap episode. How are you, AJ? I am phenomenal. How are you? I'm doing really well. We last recorded, what, six months ago? Yeah, this is the first one we've recorded since they've gone out. So I have really missed doing these. I don't know about you. I have so much fun with these. You know, AJ, I've missed doing this so much. We should consider doing them more often. How do you feel about that? Whoa, now that you sprung this on me, I'm all flustered. (laughs) But you know what? I think that sounds good. How about we do twice as many? That's crazy. Well, look, we've said it now. That means it's locked in forever. We are going to be releasing episodes twice a month instead of once a month due to overwhelming popular demand. We actually got a very, very lovely uh, positive reception to these. Incredible reception. Thank you so much, everyone. I am honestly floored. We've had tons of people telling their friends about us. We've had a lot of people who were saying like they've listened to the episode multiple times to take notes because there's a lot of good information out there. We've had a lot of really generous reviews. It's been incredible. Thank you so much. And just remember, legally, you can't call them your friends unless you send them a link to this podcast. So if you do want to keep your friends, <laughs> you've got to send them a link or else uh, the government is going to come and take them away. What are we talking about today, my friend? Today we are talking about... By the way, to prove that you are my friend, let me tell you about this great new podcast I've been listening to. Fun Problems. It has two Commonwealth game designers. It's great. What are we talking about today? Today we're talking about design space and edge cases. But first, follow up from previous episodes and other such nonsense. I have so much. Let me pull out my phone. (laughs) Oh my gosh, me too. I'm so glad you said that. So let me say all the things that I said wrong, and then you can say all the things that I said wrong, and then we'll have two people talking about how wrong I am. We already have in-jokes. It's great. did it. So anyway, in Common Mistakes New Designers Make, we missed a really, really important one that I have heard way too many new designers say, and that is, I don't want to play this game because it's similar to what I'm working on, and I don't want to copy their ideas. Now, Peter... Why is that nonsense? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going I'm to be slightly controversial and say it's not necessarily nonsense. Wow, I'm shocked. I don't do it. It's not my personal philosophy. But as, as a philosophy, I don't feel comfortable completely decrying it. Here, I'll, I'll make the pro case, and then you can completely crush me with the much stronger against case. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there's two types of people, cat people and dog people. Now, there's all kinds of different kinds of designers. And some people are the kind, and I'm not this kind. This is why I have a lot of trouble identifying with this point of view. Some people are the kind where if they see something that they're working on done really well, they lose interest in making that thing. Some people, their main goal in designing is to do something no one's seen before. And so if they see that someone's done it, they just can't work on that. Now, I don't think this is a particularly good attitude. I don't think it's particularly healthy, but it is a thing that exists in some people. And the best defense I can make about against this is not for new designers. So I I think new designers shouldn't be doing this. I'm going to retract my objection and say, yeah, you're absolutely right. But one of my favorite podcasts is called Hello Internet, which is hosted by CGP Grey and Brady Harron. CGP Grey runs a YouTube channel called CGP Grey, and Brady Harron runs a few YouTube channels, most notably Numberphile. And they said in an episode that they've both sort of stopped watching educational YouTube because they found that, uh, let's say CGP Grey wanted to do a video on the Great Wall of China, and if he went and watched a YouTube video on the Great Wall of China and someone perfectly explained something, he can't get that phrasing out of his head, even subconsciously. So when he goes to write his script, there is a pretty good chance that either he will accidentally plagiarize or he will just be so aware of how well they phrase it that nothing he does will live up to it. And this is actually quite common. I know a lot of professionals in various fields who stop absorbing the thing that they make professionally 
because of exactly this kind of issue. So I think a case can be made. Again, I don't think it's a strong case and I don't think it applies to new designers, but I think a case can be made for if you are working on a worker placement game, stopping playing worker placements for a while will allow you to not get stuck in the pattern of what everyone else is doing, maybe let you come up with some kind of fresh idea. And if you are that kind of person who really wants to make something that is unlike anything else out there, will stop you from being discouraged on the project. I don't think it's a great philosophy, but that is the philosophy and I wanted to give it a fair shake. <laughs> now crush it, crush it, AJ. One of the big problems there is you're saying something that doesn't apply to this field. You can't patent mechanics. Bang was completely 100% copy pasted and that was a lot. Now, was it ethical? No, certainly not. But the precedent that that set was really, really important for being able to, to take mechanics and to do cool things with them. Because could you imagine if worker placement was patented and now no one can make worker placements except Uwe Rosenberg. Imagine the stagnation that would happen. There. Sorry, two, two brief things before we continue. Uwe Rosenberg, while definitely a pioneer in the field, did not invent worker placement. There are games that predate his and patents expire after seven years. So uh, <laughs> neither of those things were strictly true, but your broad point <laughs> is correct. Continue. Well, first of all, thank you for holding me accountable. I appreciate that. But the other thing is when you said by going to games other than worker placement, you might find something cool to bring back. That, that That's not exclusive to making worker placements. Like you can do both and you should do both, really. And that's where a lot of wonderful, wonderful ideas have come from, smashing together two very different, really interesting ideas. The main problem that I have with the argument, and I, I do see your points, I do understand. I don't even agree with my points, so I really don't mind you disagreeing with them. <laughs> if you have someone who's like, hey, I just directed an action movie, and you're like, oh, cool. You know, what inspired you? And they're like, oh, um, romances. That's all I ever watch is romance movies. And you're like, well, why, why do you make an action movie then? versus the people who are steeped in that who know every single good action movie now they can take the best parts of them and and splice them together with their own unique perspective from their life story and from their influences and come up with something really original and really interesting again I, i'm 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 sort of devil's advocating here which is a terrible habit because i broadly do agree with you I, th I think your points are all correct and that let, let me be clear as a new designer yes 100 percent, definitely listen to this um if you're not a new designer Maybe don't take advice from us. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe we're not going to be that helpful. Yeah, the, the only counterpoint I could say is that you and I are very, very similar. So I, I, I've been a creative professional for over a decade now, and I've read a lot of books by creative professionals and how to be a creative professional. And the thing that I've really, really internalized is that everyone has a different route. Everyone does it differently. That's not to say you can't learn from other people, but the idea that like, here is the way to do it is, is always always false like it's not true of everyone Stephen King is the best example of this he wrote the book on writing which if you want to be a writer if you just like Stephen King is a magnificent read thoroughly recommend and he gives this very specific advice on like once you've finished a book put it in a drawer wait until the pages have started to curl because it's been so long since you read it then pull it out and redraft it you're done and he gives that as definitive here's how you write a book and he's Stephen King so you might look at that and be like wow Stephen King just taught me how to write a book Stephen King is sharing what works for him it's completely different to what works for someone else. For me as a writer, I don't write every day. I can't write every day. It doesn't work for me. Instead, once a week or once every two weeks, I will sit down and do 12 consecutive hours of writing and do like the entire two weeks of writing in one big lump sum because I'm a different person to older writers who have that advice write every day. And so you and I are very similar in that we like to immerse ourselves. What do you say? Steep. Steep is a really good word. We like to steep ourselves inner thing and that's how we absorb everything we need so i've listened to every episode of board game design lab including the one that you were on just on congratulations because when i'm designing i want to be absorbing it from all angles that's what works for me and so if i want to design games i gotta be playing a lot of games and playing games and playing games and playing games 
but that doesn't mean that that is the definitive way that everyone should do it. So that's the only pushback I have, and it's, it's not even about this specific point. If you're a new designer and you're not playing as many games as you can, I think you're a fool and you're going to be like, wow, I just invented Cards Against Humanity 2. Look at how amazing I am. So yes, new designers should play as much as they can, and I think there's a lot of value to be found in playing the specific genre of game you're designing just to see what has been done. But I know that it doesn't work for everyone. Just one tiny thing that I want to add to that as well is sometimes you'll find out that the game you're working on literally already exists. <laughs> that has happened to me more than once. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I've, I've, I've been halfway through development and the game's come out with the exact same pitch. Often I'll find that it's different enough that I'm not too worried. I have cancelled projects in the past because they were too similar, and now a few years on I'm like, you know, I could, I could probably go back to that. The board game industry's memory is short enough that I think I could probably pull it out and no one would be like, hey, this is like that game from three years ago. But yeah, it, it is a thing that happens for sure. <laughs> Another thing that I said wrong last episode, you asked me how the Dunning-Kruger effect would map to the Uncanny Valley, and I forgot to say there was a valley <laughs> in the Uncanny Valley. So... Just to be perfectly clear, the Dunn-Kruger effect is an exact inverse of the Uncanny Valley. It is exactly the opposite. It's like a 180 degree rotation almost. Exactly. That is exactly what it is. Anyway, another thing that I said that was wrong was I mentioned that a playtester gave wrong feedback. That's an exact quote that I said. I said, I think his feedback was wrong. That playtester gave me good feedback. They said what wasn't working for them. And as a result, I learned how to coat my game in, in a theme that makes it more congruous with what that playtester was expecting. They did exactly their job. And so I, I was completely aligned. And I think that if you take into context what I said afterwards, how I elaborated on it, I think that you'll see that I was trying to say, but I did say the words like, he was wrong and... and that was just nonsense. I, I actually have that in my follow-up as well. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. I have the words, it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that I said that was wrong is you said you were like Mr. Peanut Butter in our fun question at the end. And I was like, I don't <laughs> see that. Are you kidding me? You are so Mr. Peanut Butter. You are exactly Mr. Peanut Butter. This is the weirdest This is like a, an opinion correction. This is great. <laughs> uh, no, that, this is not an opinion. I am wrong. You are like Mr. Peanut Butter. Next, uh, I am a dirty, filthy sellout. And I got hired by a board game company. So now you can't trust a single word I say about Jelly Bean <laughs> Games. They're great. All their games are amazing. I love every single one of them. Uh, yeah, so so Peter is now my boss. I work for Jelly Bean Games, and they're a great company, and I love everything that they've ever done and everything they ever will do. Yes, since we last recorded, AJ has joined the Jelly Bean team. He's got a Jelly Bean headshot. He attends our Jelly Bean meetings. He eats a lot of jelly beans. It's very, very lovely working with him. Another thing I said that was wrong is that I said that... Shut Up and Sit Down is the reviewer to go to for seeing, like, really, like, go to, go for the throat sort of reviews. And, like, I, I think that that's still fair in a lot of ways. Like, they, they don't pull their punches. But I neglected to mention Dice Tower has literally destroyed games during the review. If you want to see a great example of this, check out their <laughs> Phase 10 review. Oh, man, Tom has never been funnier. It was... It was perfect. <laughs> I think it's important for a reviewer to hit the highs and the lows. I think I mentioned this every podcast, but my favorite review is Dan Thorot and or Dan Throw, Dan Thorot. I don't know how you pronounce it. Spacebiff.com, terrible name for a blog, great blog. And he is just completely like honest about every game he reviews. And he trashed one of my games and I, you know, no complaints because 
when he loves a game, he talks about how he loves it. When he doesn't love a game, he talks about how he doesn't love it. He doesn't hold back, and he's so good at analysis. He's like, he's my number one recommended reviewer. I really enjoy his stuff. One last thing for my end is we have a newsletter. Did we not mention that? We didn't mention that. We didn't. We didn't. Ha- we didn't have it. The newsletter. Right, because is- we recorded six months ago. <laughs> it's it's been that long. <laughs> uh, so we do have a newsletter. Part of it is talking about this podcast. Part of it is a board game recommendation that I do. We also have a column that you do where it's uh, board game Easter eggs. We've got a whole bunch of different stuff in there. It's it's really good. I, I highly recommend signing up and we'll have a link in the show notes from here on out. Podcasts and the newsletter are both called Fun Problems. They are a symbiotic relationship and we're very proud of both of them. Oh, one more thing I have is I've had a lot of people since the episodes have gone live and since the Board Game Design Lab podcast hit me up for consulting. So just to make it clear, I do consulting. If you want me to consult on your game, whether you're a publisher or whether you're a designer, happy to consult on art direction, title, theme, developing on-ramping for your game, the back of the box or Kickstarter blurb, gauging slash developing for your audience, developing your hook, box design, whatever you're looking for, I would be happy to uh, to help with that. So if you're interested in that, just send us an Podcast email. Podcast brought to you by AJ Design Consulting. <laughs> <laughs> My secret plan has finally come to fruition. That's the whole point of this. <laughs> I got a few bits of follow up. In the episode where we're talking about game experience, we mentioned big games for a lot of those. So we were talking about, you know, the experience first games. I got, to, I got to shout out both Spect Ops and Coup, which are two much smaller games. Spectre Ops is like 40 minutes, and that is probably the most intense experience I've ever had playing a board game. It's like a game of hide-and-seek. My heart starts racing. I get full of adrenaline. Love that game. And Coup is a five-minute game, ten-minute game. But that is, again, a, an experience-first game, I would call that. So just two things I, I wish I'd mentioned when we were doing the experience episode. It's interesting you call Coup experience first. Oh, How would you describe it? That's the thing is, uh, I, I think that that is what what it would be i just don't know that if someone had asked me that's what i would have said you know what yeah. i mean like it's definitely it's definitely about like the the big moments of like you call it your friend you're like you are so full of it you are not the captain three times in a row and they flip over the captain you're like ah oh, fine yeah. fine you get me it's an interesting delineation between the experience like the seven hour experience you get from something like twilight imperium and those tiny little moments of experience that you get both in Coup and Twilight Imperium. Like, they both kind of have narratives to them of different scales. And they have these, like, moments of, like... I guess that would be moment-first design. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I would definitely call Coup an experience-first game. I see it. So, one thing that I wish I'd mentioned in our Tips for New Designers is to always keep in mind other players don't know your rules as well as you do. They can't. It's your rules that you've written. And people underestimate this. People add way too many rules to their game because they've internalized all the current rules so they're okay to add more on top of that and then I'll internalize those and add more on top of that. So it actually comes up a lot if you see someone saying, I've been working on this game for five years and you sit down and it's just an incomprehensible database of rules to search through. We'll probably talk more about that at some other stage, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. Other people can't possibly know your rules as well as you do. So if they can remember them after a five minute teach, that bodes well for the rules. So yeah, just the thing to remember as a new designer, other people don't know your rules as well as you you live with them they're experiencing them for the first time and pay attention to that it, you'll find that most new designers including me especially me make their games just way too complex because they fail to take that into account even not not necessarily being too complex but one thing that I, i'm even guilty of and i think that generally speaking i'm pretty good pretty good at explaining games is because you already know all the things you're more likely to skip over things that people might not know assumed knowledge yeah exactly exactly so just just be aware of it when in doubt explain a little bit slower and explain a little bit more detail than you think you do 
I want to do a whole episode at some point on just teaching. I, th- I think teaching yeah. is such a broad topic. But one thing that, to look out for is if someone's eyes have glazed over. This this is an emotional intelligence thing. <laughs> if someone's eyes have glazed over, if you if they feel like they're not really interacting with you, then try and engage them. Ask them a question, like, but not do you understand? Because people will always just say yes. It's embarrassing saying no. I don't yeah. understand. So say things like. So you, for instance, would like move this piece over here and you would get this bonus. And then Sally is going to come over. And because you move there, she now can take this action. And then what would you want to do? Would you want to stop her from doing that? Or would you want to get this bonus over here? Yeah, absolutely. This is actually why we install cameras into the house of every single one of our listeners. Because we want to know when the podcast <laughs> is making people bored. If their eyes glazed over, we go back and actually edit it and, and make it more, more snappy. I had a note here. Don't argue feedback. Not even because, quote-unquote, it's wrong. This is what I was saying. I, I jotted down. Mm-hmm. Just consider the benefits. Like, let, let's let's say it's completely wrong. Let's say they've said something that's just completely 100% wrong. What is the benefit of arguing it compared to, like, just moving on? A, if you're arguing feedback, no matter how correct you are, so what? Like, the best-case scenario is you correct someone and, what, they feel like an idiot and don't like you or don't want to give feedback. There's a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, very famous book. I read it as a, as a, as a kid. It was one of those books that my dad had so I read it quite young and he gives an anecdote in that about at a dinner party someone says some quote and says it's from Shakespeare and the person's in the next one is like no that's from the bible and they turn to him to be the tiebreaker and he's like no it's from Shakespeare and afterwards the friend pulls him aside is like why did you say that you know it's from the bible he's like yeah it is from the bible here's the passage like here's the here's the book and verse so what what do you get out of proving this person wrong they're gonna like this way they had a nice evening they got to feel smart worst case scenario what they're going around promoting the fact that this quote is from the bible when it's not like so what whose life does that affect whereas if you make them feel smart they will like you now in general whether or not you agree with that i'm sure you can see the value of when someone is doing you a huge favor and giving you feedback making them making sure that they understand that they're wrong is not a priority. There is no possible benefit to just knowing that they're wrong and moving on. It takes up less time, it takes up less of everyone's time, it makes them feel less dumb. It's not like once you correct them, they're gonna be like, well, now that I've been corrected, I have the best feedback hidden under the the incorrectness that I could ever find. I just think don't argue feedback should, you know, as close to a broad rule as I'll ever promote. Definitely agree. And just to, to clarify a little bit, I, I did not argue with this person <laughs> in the moment. Like I treated them with, with absolute respect and I listened to them and I discussed it with them and and we talked about possible solutions to make yeah. it feel better and, and everything. Like I spent probably 20 minutes very politely uh, chatting with this person. And you know, at, at the end of the day, like they still, regardless of anything, they wanted more arrows, period. Um, but like that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Yeah. I just wanted to be clear. Like I wasn't like, you know, crapping all over this no, no, person absolutely. or anything like that. I, I like how you to make sure that I understood that I was wrong. <laughs> and really take the time as I'm giving you feedback of saying, no, Peter, I didn't do that. You're so wrong. No, my worry was just someone walking away being like, okay, if someone's wrong, correct them. Just don't. <laughs> just let them be wrong. It hurts no one. It doesn't get you anything. This is more personal philosophy than board game advice, but just let them be wrong and, and live with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else? Two small things. When people are asking for solutions, so let's say I play test your game and you say, hey, I don't know how to fix this. We were talking about this a lot and I feel like I didn't touch on this. Um, I will often say, I'm not going to give you solutions because that is designing your game. Like if I have one on the top of my head, sure, I'll share it. There's no cost in that. But in the same way as when people are offering me solutions, I'm like, hey, hey, you know, I, I'm not actually looking for solutions. I want to hear the problems. It's the game designer's job to solve those. I similarly tend not to offer solutions for that reason. I'm like... 
that's that's almost the fun part of game design or the important part of game design is solving the fun problems hey just like the name of this cartoon cartoon uh, it, it's a quote from an old blog i used to read uh just like the name of this cartoon whenever someone says the title of whatever they're doing so when people ask for solutions i tend to have the response of like that's that's the job of game design if they're really truly stuck and they're a friend of mine i might help but like generally speaking don't feel obliged to give solutions i try to avoid giving solutions a because that's the work and b because a lot of time people don't want it so just like there's, there's no real advantage in arguing feedback i don't think there's a huge advantage in offering solutions preemptively fair enough anything else yes last one and this is a screenwriting note i started this point never finished it so i wanted to quickly finish the point i was talking about how i learned the same lesson in both screenwriting and game design which is don't come in with a pitch that is like, it'll be whatever you want it to be. And the specific screenwriting example that I started and didn't finish is I used to set my shows. I write a lot of sitcoms. I used to set them in generic big city because I was like, that way, whatever city the producers want it to be in, it can be that city. No, people don't want that in the exact same way as people don't want it's a five-player game or a 10-player game or a solo game or a 100-person game. People want you to come in with a vision and tell a story that is your thing and so with sitcoms, I'm only mentioning this, it's not even relevant to board games. I mentioned it because I started it. It bugs me that I started a story. If you're writing a sitcom, set it in a city and, and imbue it with the personality of that city. Gotcha. On to the episode proper. It's quite a long preamble. We're recording two in a row, so we'll have no follow-up next episode. <laughs> so design space. Let's start off with a simple definition because that term is a little ambiguous. I don't read these show notes ahead of time, so I'm on the spot here. I don't think I have a very clean definition of design space. If you have one, I'd like to hear yours. If you don't, I can come up with I've one. got one that I don't like, so I'll give it to you and then you can fix it. Oh, hit me. Yes, great. I can criticize it. <laughs> so <laughs> my working definition is the depth and diversity of experientially different gameplay available to be explored within the confines of the core rules. Interesting. Okay, so I think we might be starting from different points. Okay, I'm glad we're starting with the definition. <laughs> yeah. I would consider design space to be the mechanisms available to you considering the core of your game. So I think we both have that kind of core rule thing. So let's pick a well-known game. Examples are always easier. Twilight Imperium. It would be completely outside the design space of Twilight Imperium if you played a card that said arm wrestle with the player that you're fighting whoever wins the arm wrestle hmm. wins. That is clearly outside the design space. Like that's a very clear cut example where that just doesn't fit in the design space, right? Yep. And so I, yeah, now that I've said that, I can see where you're coming from with the experiential thing. Another example for, uh, let, let's use a different game just to mix it up a bit. Agricola, if there was a card in Agricola that said, flip a 30 second sand timer, you get as many bits of corn as you can stack in, into a pile without falling over in that 30 seconds. These are mechanics that don't fit within the design space of the game. Right, so the definition that I was working with was more about how much space you as the designer have to create within the framework that you have and how much room there is for the players to explore within that framework. And what you're talking about is defining the framework itself. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's funny because even though we're using different words, I'm struggling to identify what the difference is between them. I think that what I would say is that we can talk about what a game wants to be, right? Like what it wants to be is a particular overarching set of restrictions, right? So if you're making a Euro game, there are things that you do not want it to be and there are things that you want it to be. There could be a lot of different mechanisms to express that, but ultimately a Euro game is about trying to manipulate systems. Right. It's about having intricate little systems and enjoying playing with those systems. And it would be not within what the game wants to be, not within the framework of it, to have something like a silly party game mechanic in it. Yeah, a pitch mechanic where someone picks the best card or something like that. 
Exactly. It's, it's funny because, again, e- even though you've defined it, I think we're talking about the same thing. I think that I'm seeing the rules, because I'm talking about rules, right? I'm talking about mechanisms mm. and rules and that kind of thing. I see the rules as what holds in that scope, whereas you're seeing the scope as what those rules define. And so, I, like I said, we're, we're saying the same thing just from two different angles, I think. Yeah, so yours is a little bit bundled into my definition, I think. So so what I meant was, I'm just going to read out the definition again and break it down. Yeah, yeah please. The depth and diversity of experientially different gameplay available to be explored within the confines of the core rules. Now, when I say core rules, what I'm talking about is the framework, is is what you're talking yeah, about when you, when you mentioned design space. Diversity of different gameplay is moot if you're throwing in things that shouldn't be there, right? So let me use sheep as an example. If I said to you, what is a field... And you said a field is the amount of space the sheep have to explore without going outside the fences. That's completely <laughs> true. If I said a field is when you build fences to confine the sheep into a specific area, that's also true. I feel like that's what we're doing here. I'm, yeah. I'm talking about the fences as defining the limits, and you're talking about the limits as being defined by the fences. So we're saying the same thing, just in two <laughs> different directions. Anyway, I, I think I think we're on the same page enough that we can uh, stop defining. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Dictionary hour is over. Uh, one quick thing is I would just like to do a quick definition of a euro because we brought it up. And one thing that we're trying to be more conscious mm-hmm. of is bringing along our newer listeners or newer designers who aren't familiar with these terms. We will be having a terminology episode that will be episode six so we are currently recording episodes four and five so if you have terms you want to find send them in and the next time we record we will add them in yeah so anything that you've heard or especially if you heard us say it on the podcast or anything that you've seen people say and maybe googling it doesn't help because googling is not always helpful for these kind of things just yeah let us know uh, how can they reach us AJ? they can reach us via our email address funproblemspodcast at gmail.com or they can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Fun Problems Pod. And we will have that at the end of the episode too. So don't feel like you have to pause and scramble and write it down. No, do feel like that. <laughs> don't do it, but feel like you it, have It to. will also be in the show notes. I'll put it in there as well. Just to make it really easy. Cool. So do you want to define what a euro is? No, that's a nightmare. <laughs> that's a trap. <laughs> okay, so we'll, we'll save that for the definition episode because that is a bit of a longer thing. I had a massive fight with my board game design friends about what a euro was. So I'm going to take a really quick stab at it. It's going to be quick and dirty. We'll go into more detail later. Euro is broadly defined as something that has not a aggressive form of player interaction, typically lower player interaction, typically more emphasis on the mechanics as the thing that you're interacting with rather than the players as obstacles. I really liked what you said earlier. Euro games are about manipulating systems. I think that's a really sharp, clean definition. Common examples, Settlers of Catan, Ticket to Ride. Heavier examples would be Agricola, Brass, stuff like that. So we'll we'll move on. I, again, don't want to waste too much time on these things. We'll give it more time later when it's appropriate. What are some common factors that limit your ability to design within the space? I've got a few that really spring to mind, but I wonder if there's more that you're thinking of. Yeah, so I'm actually glad that we were doing this episode after we did the how you start a design episode, because I think these things are pretty closely related in that if you are doing an experience first game, bam, solved, that will determine where your design space is. Does it contribute to that Mm -hmm. towards experience? Yes, then put it in. No, then don't. I mentioned in that episode also that I tend to start designs with a set of edicts. So I've got a game coming out later this year. It's currently working title is Robots or Rebellion or Revolution, something like that. And we don't have a good title for it yet. Very frustrating to me. I like having a good title for a game. And that one, I sat down with some stuff that I wanted to do. I wanted to have a game that had no victory points. I wanted to have a game that had no language required. I wanted to do these things. And once I'd set those, they helped me a lot with with design scope. So I couldn't have cards that required 10 sentences or stuff that interacted in complex ways. Because once you start using icon-based language, it really limits your design space in a really specific and interesting way. 
I would almost say, and I'm, I'm thinking of this now, audience-first design is something that maybe we should have considered. Because if you're making a game for five-year-olds, that's going to so heavily limit your design space. You can't have any language. You can't have complex rules. You can't have this, you can't have that. And you want to have very physical things. You want to have very verbal things. So I think that once you've worked out what you want your design to be, that will be the primary thing limiting your design space. But maybe the question was, how do you decide what that is? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think deciding what that is is its own thing. And I want to actually go into that next episode when we talk about the hooks that users submitted. Oh yeah, cool. Good call. That was a phenomenal, phenomenal explanation. Oh, thank you. What I'm going to just add is there's some specific things that really limit your design as well. Like you said, it could be limited by, by your audience. If it's five-year-olds, you have to have components that are very tactile, stuff like that. You can also be limited by things like marketability. I saw something a little while ago and the game just had too many components. I don't need to know a single thing about the game. I just know that looking at what they showed me, there were too many components to be able to market the thing. Whether you're on Kickstarter or not, you just can't sell a $300 game. You know, it's just, it's, it's not feasible. <laughs> yeah. You can always point to the exceptions rather than the rule like, oh, well, Kingdom Death Monster exists. And it's like, well, that is serving a very specific, very niche, very underserved audience. And don't think that you're going to be the exception rather than the rule. Other things are, are things like cognitive load. If what you're trying to do is just producing too much cognitive load, if there's just too much rules over it, if the way that you've designed the game, you've got a 60 page rule book, you need to reconsider what you're doing. Or like we talked last episode, if it has a poor first play experience, if it's so unintuitive that it takes a while to get on, then you know, you're being limited. Your design space is limited. What you're able to do is limited, but it's almost limited in a good way because it pushes you into making your game better for everyone. Think of your game design as a car, and specifically, if you're a first-time designer trying to get a game signed by a publisher, you're trying to make a consumer car. You're trying to make a Ford Focus or a Kia or whatever. You're not trying to make a race car. You're not trying to make an army tank. You're just trying to make something that will be accessible to the masses. And stuff like cognitive load and components, these are the laws of physics in which you must <laughs> obey. If you're like, yeah, okay, but I, I want mine to go really, 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 really fast. Okay, cool. You can do that, but you're only going to be selling to people who produce race cars, and that's what, <laughs> less than 0.001% of the market. Yep. If, you're, if your cognitive load is through the roof, you're making a race car, and no consumer car manufacturer is going to be able to buy that. <laughs> you are not wrong, sir. Do you have any examples of times that in one of the games that you've actually published, you've run up against a wall because of design space? I know that with, with Jellybean specifically, we're trying to make games that are able to be played by kids and adults and be fun for both of them, regardless of the combination. That seems like a really, really fierce limitation. Uh, the, the listeners can't see this, but I got the biggest grin on my face when you said we. Because I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, you're part of Jellybean now. How exciting. So for me, one of the clearest examples is in Dracula's Feet. So Dracula's Feast is a logical deduction game in which you play Dracula or Van Helsing or a zombie and things like that. And you're trying to work out whoever else at the table is. And there was one card that we had called the Magic Mirror in the original Dracula's Feast. We ended up putting in Night of the Mummy instead, but it's, it's a completely different ability. And in Dracula's Feast, everyone has one of these roles. And importantly, there's either one or two face down in the middle of the table. They're the mystery guests. Without it, the game becomes too solvable. It, it never even finishes a full round before everyone who works out everyone is. It, just adds, it has just enough obfuscation that it becomes an actual game, a fun little puzzle to solve. And the magic mirror ability was before the game starts, look at the mystery guest. That's it. Very simple. Except it was the only card in the entire game that had a before the game starts and we had to cut it. We had to lose it. It, it was balanced. It was fun. It was interesting. But 
take it took us outside of the do you ever in a card start the game it added a whole new phase you never want to add a phase for one card i see this all the time in in prototypes and occasionally in published games and it just drives me up the wall you never want to have a phase that exists for one card just kill that card it's outside of your domain space it's expanding the core rules of your game for this one card never worth it and so even though the card worked the fact that you could deal out the cards, get halfway through the round, then someone could go, oh wait, I was meant to do this, and you'd have to stop and start again. It broke out of the design space in a way that wasn't worth it. And sometimes it's possibly worth it, not for Jelly Bean games for sure, because like you said, we're doing this like kid-friendly thing. We're doing family games that anyone can kind of pick up and play. And yeah, the Magic Mirror in its original form, it's in Night of the Mummy with a completely different ability. The Magic Mirror just completely broke that. That's a, that's a really good example. And it shows a lot of dedication that you had something that worked that was fun that was good and you cut it i think it's a really good example of killing your darlings this podcast sponsored by jellybean games go to jellybean.games and buy <laughs> dragon's feast <laughs> sorry god <laughs> man we, we should have recorded all the episodes uh, talking about your games before i got married because then people would know that i actually do like most of your games you actually do like one of our games <laughs> i love two of jellybean games games and i respect all the other ones that i've played but they're not for me <laughs> I hope that's fair. Yeah, yeah, of course. Robots is phenomenal. That's my favorite worker placement game, full stop. Maybe behind Targi, but it's up there for sure. And Goblin Teeth, I was just double checking the tabletop simulator implementation. Man, I forget how much I like that game. That's a really good game. <laughs> that one is great. Frank Tedeschi designed that one. That's another good example. That game, oh man. Okay, so when I signed Goblin Teeth, there were only seven different action cards. Now there's 50. One of the things that I'm very good at is coming up with content. So I just came up with a lot of content for that game and Frank and I tested it and it wasn't like I did it behind his back or anything like that. But I took that game from seven cards with like three or four copies each, maybe a few more than that, but it wasn't many, to 50 unique cards. And in the original, however many it was, there were six that were action cards and one that was a permanent. And so mm -hmm. immediately I was like, you, you, can't, you can't do that. You can do that, obviously games do it, but don't do that. Don't have like this one card that has separate rules. And so what we did was we ended up making, of the 50 cards, I think there's maybe 30 to 35 action cards and 15 permanents. Because the introduction of that idea of a permanent was design space to play with. The reason I knew I was able to come up with 50 cards, and this is the way that I think of design space as a, a pragmatic thing, that game had enough design space that even after my first play, even after my second play, I was like, I can definitely come up with 50 cards. There's enough knobs to twiddle and levers to pull that I can come up with different ways that these things interact in, in interesting ways without ever expanding past the original scope of the design space. So for example, that game has dice. As soon as you have dice, you've opened up a whole world of design space to play with. You can re-roll dice, you can set dice to numbers, you can flip dice to the opposite side, you can have, if this dice says this, then do that. That's all design space that comes with dice. Dice brings a lot of design space with it that you can play with. And the joy of dice is that it also comes with its own experience. So again, I view design space as a rules creating experience thing rather than experience limited by rules thing. And dice, they suggest so much experience and so much design space that yeah, they're a beautiful, beautiful thing if you can get them working well. I think you just touched on, without realizing it, a phenomenal way for people to assess their game and find ways to generate content. So the way that I will always generate content, if I need to make more cards or new abilities, or if I'm giving suggestions, the first thing you do is say, all right, what's the, the, what's the coolest, most unique part of my game and start there. But this advice applies to anything. When you're looking at it, try and break down every step that you have of the game and think, what could I do with that aspect? So like you just said there, 
you have a die. What are the steps? You roll the dice and then you spend them. That's how it works in Goblin Teeth. That's it. Okay, when I'm rolling, there's different things I can do. I can re-roll it. Once it lands, it's got a number, but it has a lower number and a higher number. You can increase or lower it. On the exact opposite side, you can flip it. So look at your components, look at the rule systems, and think to yourself, what are all the different ways that I can manipulate this? What are all the different ways I as the designer or they as the player can interact with these little systems? And it gets even deeper when you have coupling together, which I'm going to get to in a little bit. Absolutely. What are some genres or mechanics that are particularly conducive to design space? For me, my first thought was legacy games because you can do anything and you can keep adding more and more stuff. And the players, if they play the game 10 times, you can really ramp up the complexity in a way that you can't get away with with other games. Yeah, legacy games have so much design space for two reasons. One is exactly what you mentioned. Remember during follow-up, I was saying, once you've learned your rules, you will layer stuff on top of that and then layer stuff on top of that. Mm -hmm. That's okay in a legacy game. You're allowed to. Same with expansion, same kind of thing. They're like, okay, you've played the base game enough that you understand these and now I can really start to play with them. The second thing about legacy games is that that's not only okay, that's what people want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's why people are playing legacy games. People want that kind of late experience. It's the same as watching something like The Wire or, or some kind of deep running show. You don't have to factor in. What if this is their first episode? You just don't have to do that. And so first play, first episode, that's the parallel here. With something like The Wire, people want to have watched the first three seasons. So when you do something, then they have that shared knowledge. They have that. With a legacy game, yeah, people want to be challenged after having played it three times yeah legacy games is a really good example as opposed to episodic tv series we, we both are really big into movies and tv so i'm sorry you, you're gonna get a lot of this <laughs> in an episodic show you'll notice especially back in the day in older sitcoms every intro was an explanation of the concept of the show it's the it's a lady who's bringing up three very lovely girls literally the theme song of a lot of shows would explain the premise because someone could tune in and you, it had to be ready for that to be the first episode they ever watched and because you didn't necessarily have guaranteed that they would watch uh episodes in a row you couldn't have ongoing yeah. plots it was actually really really rare to even have a two-parter episode so that, i think that that's another good example there second to legacy it, it's a little obvious when i say it like this but games that either have campaigns or like dungeon crawlers with different scenarios those are ripe for design space because you can make often in those games a lot of different creatures and layouts and there's just so much room to manipulate and to have slight variations on things and dungeon crawlers are campaign games so again it's it's a serialized medium mm -hmm. <laughs> to go back into tv lingo like jelly bean games are episodic i want someone to be able to pick up any jelly bean game and start playing with that within five minutes without ever having played it Whereas, you know, you don't, you don't have that same expectation for mission five of Kingdom Death. Like, you just can't. <laughs> mm -hmm. Are there any other examples that you think of, of, of particularly conducive genres or mechanics even? Yeah. So I think about this a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated and obsessed with design space. So one of the Jelly Bean games is a game called Meow. And it's very, in like, that was a really interesting game to work on because it's not like any of the other Jelly Bean games. In fact, it's not like many games. And I don't say this to be like, wow, look at how unique we are. It was just really interesting to work on because it's not like most games. It has a very physical element in a way that board games are a physical medium, but a lot of board games translate perfectly to digital adaptations. You can play Agricola on the computer just as easily as you can play it in real life. That's why Tabletop Simulator and Tabletopia and you know iOS ports and stuff like that are for. Meow, it just wouldn't work. It just flat out wouldn't work because it's a game about watching the other players as they do stuff like scratch their nose or touch their head. And like, how do you import that into Tabletopia? You tell me, because I have no idea. And so it was really interesting working on that because, again, I wanted that game to have a lot of content. Every game you play with somewhere between 7 and 13 cards, 
and we included 100 cards in the box. So every time you shuffle that deck and pull out 13 cards, I wanted for the first, probably the first 100 plus plays, there's going to be a card in there that you've maybe never seen before. Because, you know, the, the way that statistics work, you're not going to, you could theoretically just go through the deck in order, I guess. And then I think we added something like 50 promo cards as well. So that game has just so much content. So I needed to generate a lot. And while I was working on it, I realized that using the physical space around you just gives you so much that you can do. And it was interesting because I wanted to try to limit myself to be as accessible as possible. So one of the cards, and I might have told this story before, involved crossing your hands across your chest. And I was playtesting at the group and a rather large bosomed woman said, hey, this is not going to be as easy for me as this for other people. And I was like, oh yeah, that's not inclusive. That's not as accessible. Because it, uh, what was it? It was something like, touch your elbows together. That's right. It was touch your mm. elbows together. <laughs> and that's going to be a very different experience for, for certain people than others. And so that was the design space limitation. If I'd ignored that, you could do anything. You can have, you know, hop three times. You can have run around the entire city. You know, if the, the design space is so expensive that I really had to pay attention to what was constraining it. Because otherwise, I could have written 10 million cards without problem. That's a really good example, I think. What do you do when edge cases limit your design space? Is that a good thing because it focuses your design? Or is that something that you have to try and rethink how the fundamental rules work to remove the edge case? So it's interesting. I came up with the name of this podcast. I'm sorry to throw you under the bus, AJ. All me, I came up with this name. Because to me, solving fun problems is the crux of board game design. It's a bit of a dual meaning, both solving problems to do with fun and solving problems that are fun to solve. So once I've got the initial idea and I've started playtesting, for me, the essence of board game design, you could argue this is board game development, but it's you know roughly the same thing. The essence of getting a board game finished is solving these problems. It's all problem solving. You'll play test and someone will be like, these rules are too hard. Bam, cool, amazing. They've just done you a huge favor because they've articulated a problem and human beings are problem solving machines. This is the thing that we do. This is why we like board games. A board game itself is hey, you want to get these points, but here are the obstacles, solve this problem. And we're like, oh, I will solve this problem. Not only do I enjoy solving the problem, I enjoy it so much that it's my primary hobby that I pour hundreds of dollars into. <laughs> we love problem solving. And so for me, game design and playing a game are really not that different at all. This is why our newsletter is called Fun Problems. It's not just about board game design, it's about board games generally, but both solving and designing board games is fun problems. So for me, design is problem solving. And the more I do it, the more I've reached the conclusion that there are almost no unsolvable problems. Almost none. Now, when you start, every problem is very difficult. I do a lot of Sudoku. I'm really fascinated by Sudoku. When you start doing Sudoku, you'll probably have done the ones in the newspaper very easy. You'll learn these techniques like X-wings or Y-wings or unique rectangles, all that kind of stuff. And they will give you the tools that you need to solve Sudokus. Then you start getting into Sudoku variants and you will hit some that you're like, this is impossible. I did a Sudoku the other day, couldn't even get started. I spent probably two hours on it, couldn't get a single digit in the grid. And then I watched a video from the Cracking the Cryptic YouTube channel, who we actually are publishing a book by. And it was just like, oh, I see what they did. Like they just had access to this tool that I didn't know existed. So the more that you design games, the more tools you get access to, the more problems you can solve. So what you're describing is, hey, I've hit this problem. How do I solve it? And one solution is to allow an edge case. That's a very, very, very clumsy solution, but it'll absolutely solve it. You know, magic mirror, cool. Allow an edge case, done, solved it. Another solution is to restructure the game. As you said, these are both completely valid solutions. I find most often that the solution that works for me is eject the problem and come up with something more fun to replace it. <laughs> and that might sound like, oh, okay, sure, Peter. How do, you, how do you make money? Just make money, great. But the more you do this and the better you get at it, not only the more you do it, the more experience you get, the more you do it, the more you see that you can do it. When I started, I think 
and I'm, I'm not 100% sure on this, I think the original Dracula's Feast had Magic Mirror as an edge case. Because I was like, well, this is a good ability that is fun, and I don't want to take it out. Why would I want to take it out? It's fun. I didn't even consider it to be a solvable problem. But the more I design and the, and the more that I solve these problems, I'm like, oh yeah, this is absolutely solved. Does that answer the question? It's kind of a roundabout philosophical way of answering a very simple question. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a useful answer. That's kind of what I was hoping for. I hope the <laughs> listeners got something out of it. I, it makes sense to me anyway. How about expansions? You've worked on expansions for games. Surf and Turf just came out for Village Pillage, one of your most popular games. This podcast sponsored by Jellybean Games. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, I wrote these show notes so long ago. <laughs> But anyway, when is it worth considering future design space for expansions when you're working on the base game? Or is it ever? So here's the dirty little secret of the industry. Most expansions are stuff that the designer wanted to put in the, in the base game, but decided that it would make it too complicated. I've seen a lot of that. Yeah. When you're working on a game, you want to have all these cool things because it's your game. And again, you know your rules better than anyone. I'm glad I mentioned that in follow-up because it's come up a lot. When you're playing a game with people... The way to design an expansion is to take your base game and say, hey, could I take out this entire mechanism and the remaining game still be fun? I, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that Queen Domino was the original design. Yeah, me too. I think he designed Queen Domino. It was very fun and interesting and complex. And then he said, okay, but what if I took out these three elements? You have a much simpler game, but a still very playable, fun game that allows for the expansion to happen. We've got a game coming out soon called Cartouche, in which there are three types of goals. It was originally four types of goals, and we were just like, look, this game works, it's fun. This one type of goal is presenting enough of an issue to new players that we're putting it in the box as an expansion, I guess an inspansion or whatever, but we are deliberately segregating it from the base experience because it doesn't add to that base experience. It makes the base experience worse. It's still fun, it's still playable, it still works, but by splitting it off like that, we get to control that first play and say, hey, have as much fun as you can in the most accessible way possible. If you want more, bam, I've got it right here. And this touches on something that, again, I, I want to do a whole episode on on-ramping. On-ramping is one of my favorite topics in game design. I think it's so important, and I think it's so underexplored by designers, is hiding content from the players that they're not supposed to have. Putting things as advanced rules, or for your first game, do X. The more you can make it feel like like a bonus, like a like a prize. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It comes with... It comes with this extra expansion in the box. Like you say, it's really something that you are going to include, but it's too complicated, so you list it as an expansion. Like, that's brilliant. That helps players get familiar with the base game, and it helps them to be able to get into the more advanced content once they're actually ready for it. I think that every game should be doing this. I use hyperbole. I think most games should be doing this to some extent or another, and I think that it would allow the designers to get a lot more of their vision into the game with the things that they wanted to be in there but were too complicated. And as the consumers, it feels awesome. Customers love it because they're like, oh, cool, there's all this extra stuff for me to work through. The really important thing, though, is to make sure that if you have, like, layers of this, right? If you have Expansion 1, then Expansion 2, Expansion 3, Expansion 4, and it feels like a campaign, when they're done, you don't want them to feel like they are done with the game. You want them to feel like, ah, now I've got a really robust game that I can go back to. Yeah, absolutely. You wrote up Surf and Turf, and Surf and Turf is interesting because I think it's the only expansion that we've published separate to the base game at Jellybean Games, and that one we didn't do that. So the whole spiel I went on about like splitting stuff off during the design process is not how we designed Surf and Turf at all. Instead, Tom Lang, who's my Village Pillage co-designer, sat down and said, okay, we want to add more cards. If you've played Village Pillage, you know the only direction an expansion can possibly go is more cards. Like That's what we want. More villages that you can recruit. Except we'd completely, completely, completely explored the 
design space to the base game. We couldn't just add 10 more cards that were like, and using these same mechanics, here's the tweaks. We'd, You'd explore the depth. Yeah, we'd, we'd explore that depth as much as we could possibly explore it. And so we said, okay, well, what do we want to do? What if we added a more powerful card? How would we make that balanced? Well, what if it was a more powerful card, but it was one use? And so we came up with this mechanism, which is what the Surf expansion is, which is a lot of kind of one-use cards or cards that destroy themselves after a certain amount of time. And it allowed us to add power without experience. Power creep. Power, power creep is when expansions make more powerful cards that you need more powerful cards to defeat, which need more powerful cards. And you go back to the base game, and you're like, oh, these are all just really weak. That's power creep. So we wanted to avoid power creep. So we had to have them have weaknesses. So weakness here was you lose it. You've paid for this card, you get it, and then it goes away again. And that was how half that expansion got created by us being like, how can we make more powerful cards? The other half was looking at the cards that we already had. We should talk about keywords. I think keywords are a key part of um, design space. Yeah. Do, you want, do you want to define what a keyword is? Love to. A keyword is a word that the first time you read it, you have to read the rules explanation associated with it. And then once you understand the rules association, you can just read the keyword and skip the rest of the text. This is especially common, not just in, in literal words, but also in iconography. The first time you read the explanation of an icon, you learn what the icon means, and hopefully it's thematic enough that your brain can latch onto it. And then from now on, all you have to do is glance at the quick icon or glance at the quick keyword, and you say, ah, oh, yes, I remember. Trample means that my creature's so big that it deals damage, and the extra damage goes over and hits the enemy. I think they were mostly popularized by Magic the Gathering, but they've been used to really good effect in modern board games recently. Absolutely. And the key thing the key thing with keywords is that you you don't have too many of them. If every card has its own keyword, yes. you, well, you don't have keywords anymore. That's not the point. And again, especially the jelly beans because of the audience we're aiming for. In Village Pillage, there are maybe four or five keywords. Maybe, let, let's, let's say there's five. There's you know, five, give or take one or two. That was the design space. The design space, we have these mechanics and these keywords, and we've done as much as we can think of with these. And so the next solution was to add more keywords. And we didn't want to, again, we didn't want to have an expansion that added five. I think we added, we added one more keyword and one more concept. And concept and keywords are very closely related, obviously. So in Village Pillage, there's a, a keyword which is exhausted. If I play a card against you and my card exhausts yours, you can't use it next turn. As you said in your example, like it's a very thematic word because it applies to villages and it card exhausted, so but it can come back next round. And so when we were doing Surf and Turf, we looked at that and we were like, what would the opposite of that be? What if there was a card that said you had to play it next turn? And so I think we ended up calling it Provoke, which again was a, a, a nice thematic term. And so, yeah, we looked at the base game and said, okay, what if we did the opposite of some of these keywords? Or what if we broke some of the fundamental rules? One of the fundamental rules in Village Pillage is that your cards only affect the players to left and right. So in the expansion, the Surf expansion is a bunch of powerful cards that go away for some reason. And then the Turf expansion is Provoke. And so again, we, we just explored that and did everything we possibly could with it. I think if we had to do another expansion, we would be out of ideas we'd have to come up with more keywords that would be the trick and again it's okay because people who are buying the expansion have played the base game enough and then we said well in the original game every card only affected your neighbors what about cards that affect everyone and so that was our system for coming up with expansion content it wasn't stuff that we had left over from the base game it was us saying what would we need to create more design space what would we need to do we would need to add things so we have essentially three concepts Cards that destroy themselves, cards that provoke, and cards that affect the whole table. And that was enough to build an entire second set of Village Pillage cards. Good stuff. So that's the end of our episode proper. So let's start off the wrap-up with a teaser. Ooh. Next episode, we're going to be talking about community-submitted hooks. We asked in our first or second podcast people to send in their hooks for their games. So we are going to assess them. We're going we're gonna to walk through them. We're going to be pretty thorough 
and we're going to talk about like what we like about them, what we don't, where to improve, do they communicate the idea well, all sorts of stuff. But rather than doing a teaser where we talk about one of the hooks from next episode, I thought it'd be more fun to do something a little different. Before we came on today, (laughs) we played one of my prototypes, a game called Scallywags, and I have played Peter's game Robots quite a few times, so I thought it would be fun if I gave a hook for Peter's game, and Peter gave the hook for my game, and then you guys tell us which one you'd rather play. (laughs) Whatever one of us convinces you to play the other's game wins. Oh, great. So if I, giving the hook, convinced you that Peter's game is better, I win. (laughs) And we only publish the winner. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, the other one gets destroyed, uh, which will be very expensive for me if I don't win because I've already put all money to art and, and uh, graphic design. Okay, so you go first. Tell me, tell me the hook for robots. Robots has a mechanical hook, which I actually think is the toughest one to really sell people on. So I went with the challenge. Yeah, you, you set yourself <laughs> set yourself up for success. I love it. But it's such a good game that's going to sell itself anyway. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Robots. So the hook is a worker placement game with the ability to place on the intersections of worker placement spaces, allowing you to gain multiple benefits at once. How do you think I did? Oh, I, w- I want to fight that hook so bad. Really? Oh, what would you say for it? <laughs> yeah. So it's funny because this is my game and I spent a lot of time with it, as you do with your own game. And while that was the hook that I came up with while designing it, that is not the hook that people latch onto. Interesting. Let's hear it. The hook that most people identify with, and I'm not fair this at all, so I don't have a great way of phrasing it, is that it's a worker placement game where your workers stay out on the board until a giant robot comes in and crushes them into cubes, which are your resources for the rest of the game. Right. So that is the thematic hook. But I think that the mechanical hook is juicier. But it's also mechanical. That's also part of the mechanical hook. You're not wrong. Well, ignore what Peter said, because you have to just go off of what I said. You can't use his hook to convince (laughs) you to buy his game. Scallywags is a push-your-luck game where you're trying to get as far along as you can a map that was built by your opponent. That's not bad. I think that I would touch more on the fact that it's sort of a push-your-luck from both ends. Because if you go too far, if you reveal too many hazards, you're going to bust. You don't get the bonuses from what you reveal. The person who created it busts. So it's kind of like a double layer push your luck. You push your luck on how many bonuses do you give your opponent trying to coax them into it? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because uh, firstly, that, that part doesn't grab me as much as the uh, the setting the traps. Uh, if if okay. you've ever played Ninjutsu, which is one of the Jelly Bean games, that is also a game where you can like put stuff out for your opponent to kind of stumble into. And I love that. Mm-hmm. that. That lights my candle. I think that it's interesting that we both focused a little bit more on the things that we particularly liked about it. Yeah. So you were not objective <laughs> enough. <laughs> Yes. Okay, cool. That, that's great. I love that. Oh, what a fun little exercise. Cast your vote. You can email us. You can post it on Twitter. You can post it on Facebook. Just let us know which one you like better, just for fun. I've got a lot of money riding on this, so please <laughs> pick mine. <laughs> they will take my house. <laughs> and just a quick reminder, we are working on the show notes for the game terminology episode, so do send in any terms that you want to find. And now on to the final part of the show, which is the unrelated fun question. So this is a part of the show where we ask each other completely unrelated to game design question, just to know each other better, just to get you guys to know us better, and just for fun. So Peter, my unrelated question, what is the most underrated movie you've ever seen? Oh, oh. I knew you'd like this one. Okay, so my friend Jeremy is the head of Handle Arbor Games who do the digital adaptation of Sentinels of the Multiverse, One Deck Dungeon, I think other games as well. 
And I went and stayed at his house last year before the, the sickness. And we just spent, oh man, we spent like three days just watching movies. We just bounced movie suggestions back and forth. And he pulled out a movie that not only had I never heard of, I still have never heard of. I've never heard anyone mention this film. I've never heard it being discussed. I've never seen like it come up in a video essay about movies or anything like that. And it's probably in my top 10 films of all time. Wow. So this is like one of the most underrated films I've ever seen and one of the best films I've ever seen in that no one's heard of it and I thoroughly recommend it. I don't know if you know this about me, AJ. I avoid trailers. I will not go to a movie until like the trailers are done. I will not watch them on TV. I even, I take it so far as to try to avoid posters. I want to go into films knowing as little as possible. If you like a film, just tell me you like the film. Don't give me the synopsis. And I think Coherence is a really good movie for this. So my advice to you <laughs> is go and find Coherence and watch it without knowing about it because I think it's a better experience that way. But yeah, Coherence, it makes it a kind of boring recommendation, but holy crap, do I like that film. So yeah, Asia, here's, here's your homework. Before we <laughs> next record, you should go and find Coherence and watch it and then tell me if, if you think that is an appropriate recommendation. And if not, you can give a proper recommendation for it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. What is the most underrated film that you have ever seen? So this isn't remotely in my top 10. <laughs> so uh, I guess it's a bit less of a recommendation, but I think it is so underrated for how good it is. Have you heard of Noah, the aka the Darren Aronofsky version? I don't know any of those words. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Darren Aronofsky is a very prolific director. I'm surprised you haven't heard of him. Is he Black Swan? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. It's ostensibly about the biblical story of Noah, but here's why it's so underrated. Anyone who is a Christian and reads the Bible and knows anything about Noah will watch that movie and think, what the hell? <laughs> that has nothing to do with the Bible. This movie is terrible and offensive and I hate it. Wow. Every Christian will think that. That is quite didactic. Except me. But anyone who's not a Christian isn't going to go see it because they're like, I don't care about the biblical story of Noah. Why would I watch that? Right. But the thing is, it's just this really cool, dark fantasy world that the broad strokes, like... Like there's a flood? Yeah, there's a global flood. Yeah, there's, okay. there's an arc. Like, that's the extent to which it is the same. It's not like a metaphor. It's not like he's is a man who saves his family from the rising tides of poverty and collects two of every type <laughs> of friend you can have or anything like that. My suggestion would be, if you are at all willing to indulge me, go to YouTube and search for the angels scene. Essentially, their concept of what angels are is after mankind sinned and got cast out of the garden, blah, blah, blah. If, if you know anything about Christianity, that makes sense. If not, well, whatever, it's fine. They explain it in the movie. The angels came down to try and help people, but that was against what God wanted. And so as they were coming down, God forced them into the earth. And as they like struggled to like fight <laughs> against it, they became these like rock golems. And that's their concept of demons. That's cool. That's just such a cool idea. That's 30 seconds of the movie. <laughs> so anyway, it, it's full of a lot of cool ideas. I think it's underrated. It's not the best movie ever, but it's some fun. Eh, Noah, I'll check it out. So that is all for this, the fourth episode of Fun Problems. Thank you everyone so much who's left a review or sent an email or sent us a Facebook message. We really appreciate it. It's lovely to know that people are enjoying hearing this as much as we're enjoying making this. And despite the six month gap between recordings, I am very much enjoying making it. For us, it'll be in about 20 seconds time. For you, it'll be two weeks. We will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Fun Problems Pod or reach us via email at funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. 
We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.